Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is William Fickman, founder and chief strategy officer at Amazia. Amazia is based in Los Angeles, California, assists brands in navigating the complex and highly nuanced world of the Amazon marketplace to ensure their clients maximize revenue, retain full control of their brand integrity, and improve customer experiences. For over 16 years, William has dedicated his career to helping hundreds of brands thrive on the most critical e-commerce channel by developing services and programs that adeptly utilize the platform. William has managed over $200 million worth of product sales on the marketplace and on average achieved a 35% year-over-year revenue growth for brands in partnership with Amazia. William holds a Bachelor of Business Administration from California State, Northridge. So William, welcome to the Second Command Podcast. Thanks, Cameron. I'm looking forward to this. I've um, coached a number of companies that have been in the Amazon space and actually currently coach a client wishing you well that I think is fairly similar to what you guys do as well. But I've coached guys from uh, Viva Naturals, Nested Naturals, Jacked Factory, a um, couple other ones that are, are in your space. How did you get involved in the Amazon space? And, and I know those guys, wishing you well, I've definitely seen it, some of the Amazon uh, conferences over the years. The other guys, mm-hmm. I don't know if they're private label or brand managers, really. Uh, that's how the market break, breaks down on Amazon. So it's actually our third iteration of the business inside of the same corporate shell. We started originally with, uh, remember those franchised eBay drop-off stores where people would yeah. stuff? Yep. So we were a master franchisee of that um, back in 2004. Uh, and then a couple years in, that business model really was not working. We were always searching for like, okay, how do we keep our head above water in this existing franchise business? Um, and so we, one day... Uh, a guy walks into the store with some uh, skincare products and goes, hey, can you sell these for me on Amazon? And it wasn't just like a consumer. He had cases of them. And at the time, it was like, I was like, you know, I, I don't see these doing well on eBay, but, you know, I think Amazon might be a good market. This is like 09. Um, so I'm like, let's try it on, on Amazon instead. And so <laughs> just, you know, I'd been selling on Amazon before that for probably another four or five years of personal like books and stuff. Um, so I'd kind of been familiar with selling on Amazon at the time. There really was not a market on Amazon like we know of it today. Uh, and so I threw up the cream on Amazon overnight, sold a couple, got another case, flipped it, got another 10 cases, flipped it, got another 20, you know, and just kept going. Um, and pretty quickly it was, the guy started bringing us other brands and other brands. And pretty soon we had like 20 different brands we were managing all through this one guy. Um, so that's really how it started. And then we just, started going to market, getting our own brands. Um, and that was really version two, you know, for the next five years, probably built up a $20 million business, just flipping stuff on Amazon. Interesting. And then in 2016, changed it to Amazia, started, you know, really formalizing this business and offering a whole lot more service to brands um, than we did back then. And back then there was no such thing, you know, in 2004 to 2009, uh, if you went to any brand and said, Hey, I want to sell your stuff on Amazon. I was like, get out of here. What is Amazon? We don't, we don't care about Amazon. Sure. But then, you know, brands started realizing, okay, I, I should pay attention. What is this Amazon anyway? So how does Amazia select the brands to say yes to? Cause I would imagine you've probably got more client demand than you want even. 
Yeah, we get a lot of brands that come to us wanting to, you know, build their brand. We get a lot of CBD brands want to come help us launch their CBD brand or whatever. And to be honest, we, we always say we're not great. Like that zero to one million, we're not great. Um, we're really good when your brand's got a little bit of awareness in the market and you want to accelerate it, you want to grow it. You know, that's when we can come on and, and really help. But in the beginning, you know, we're not that only because today on Amazon, unfortunately, you've got a very dirty market, lots of black hat actors, um, you know, doing tricks that we just can't compete with. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Amazon allows it to kind of continue on, not intentionally necessarily, but it's just too hard to control. Um, and so we, we just choose not to compete in that because, you know, we try to not do play on the black hat side of, of the market. It's interesting. I like that you're very similar in this, the types of companies that you work with to the ones that I coach. I don't coach any early stage companies. I already need them to have a proof of concept and a management team. And then I help them really scale it. But I'm terrible at knowing if it's a good idea or if it's going to sell. But once you know it's going to sell, then you can help it. Do you have an, an industry that you like or specific niches that you like? Or is it just as long as there's a business that isn't yet on Amazon? No, we're, we're probably half of our portfolio is beauty and skincare and healthcare related still. And it's because that first guy that walked in our store had those skin care and eye care products. And we kind of just kept in that industry for, for all those years. So we understand beauty better, I think. Uh, but today we're in sports, automotive, beauty. Um, it doesn't really matter. We realize like what's in the box doesn't matter. You know, you know, at the end of the day, it's how do you market it? Who's the customer? What's the keywords have to look like? What does the imagery have to look like, you know, to make this brand? Then how do you guys charge? Do you take a percentage of revenue or are you paid a, a monthly fee and a percentage? How do you, how do you charge? Yeah, we're typically in a, we are in a partnership model. So we become the Amazon distributor. Um, we're taking a percent ultimately of the retail sale, but it, it's in margin. I mean, they're selling to us and then we're selling for more on Amazon. So okay. just rough back of the paper napkin, let's say they sell to us for a buck and we sell it for two bucks. Amazon takes a fee off that two bucks as well. And are you selling under the Amazia brand or are you selling under the brand that you're selling, like under under whatever is on the package? Our model's actually unique. Uh, we're, we run uh, kind of a retail distribution model. So we don't sell under the Amazia um, brand name. We work with many other retail parties that end up being the retailer on Amazon. Uh, but Amazia serves as sort of the, the distributor in the background, you know, make, making it happen and orchestrating the, the positioning of a brand on Amazon, but we don't do the actual end consumer retailing. Interesting. I actually coach a, a group out of California called Giddy Up and they do um, all direct to consumer, but they don't do anything on Amazon, but that's a very similar model to what how they do. How do you control one of the things that you hear about in your industry and and it's it's almost similar to i guess anyone in digital marketing you kind of work really really hard at the beginning to get the customer up and running and on the platform and performing and getting reviews and then they're like yeah we're going to take it in-house now how do you prevent that and is that a problem with you guys so we we actually have that conversation up front we know like brands are going to want to itch for that or have that desire probably when they get into the several million range on Amazon. So once you're doing two, three, four, five million on Amazon a year, you start to think, okay, what's my margin on this business? I can essentially build a whole in-house team of, because to do Amazon well, you probably need at least five full-timers. You know, you need a copywriting person, an image person, a strategy person, an ads person. Um, So there's these different disciplines. And someone that knows ads well does not know how to do graphic design well. 
Yep. Um, and so you probably need five disciplines to really, you know, run a legit business, not out of the garage kind of an operation. So, so probably when brands are in the several million range, you, you know, they start to get that itch, but we have brands, you know, significantly higher than that, that are not going anywhere. And it's just, they're like, you know, we realize you're good at what you do and we're good at making products and developing new products and, you know, pushing out new SKUs. And we want to focus on that. We don't want to focus on, you know, being the, the Amazon retailer distributor or manager essentially. Yeah, I know in the, in the franchising world, we when I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I, I used to tell franchisees pretty much at their interview when we were awarding a franchise, you know, at some point, six months to a year out, you're going to think we're idiots and you're going to be pissed off you're paying a royalty. And at the two-year mark, you're going to think you could do it better. But around year three or year four, you'll realize that if we if we hold hands and run, you can really grow this thing because we're going to be, you know, a great partner. And then they would get to those stages and we'd kind of remind them, is that what you're doing with your customers as well? Do you, do you let them know that this is the feelings you're going to have and then say, oh, by the way, remember I told you two years ago, you're going to have it like you're there now? Or how do you? In our case, every brand has a unique journey. I mean, I can give you the opposite of that story. We have a brand that, you know, is doing, let's say, you know, like a hundred million dollar business. They're doing a couple million on Amazon. It's being run internally by essentially one Amazon employee in their business suddenly they discover that guy was actually double dipping. He was working for two brands at the same time, running both their Amazon businesses. Right. So they've got a full timer that they think is full time, but he's actually running a whole nother job separately. And so uh, they end up firing him. And now it's like, oh, shoot, who's going to run the Amazon business now? So they decide to outsource and, and give it all to us. And then we run it and we elevate it. You know, we take it from there and, and grow it. But you know, it's, so it's not always someone like thinking how, you know, what's the soonest I could leave Amazia and do this on my own. Sometimes it's, you know, Hey, who, who's, who out there is, is good at doing this? Who's the best at doing this at this category that could help us build this business or, or run it or, you know, run it while we're busy doing other things in our business. Right. Yeah. You don't have to be the best in the world at all things. Right. Yeah. I always say like, you know, you, you can't do everything. Like, you know, we all know how to cook, but doesn't mean we stop going to restaurants. Right. Now you, you were one of the co-founders of Amazia. How many co-founders were there? So we're three brothers and three partners since day one uh, for almost 16 years now. Uh, and so, you know, in the business, I, I, you know, in the corporate entity, we're co-founders, but the Amazia con concept, I kind of pivoted the business in 2016 from a pure just reselling on Amazon business to a more, you know, managed kind of a brand management business, which is what we're doing today. Um, and then one of the other key specialties that exist is the brand protection part. Um, I didn't really cover that earlier. I should have, but one of the specialties we've developed that allows for brand management is this concept of brand protection where, you know, a brand partners with us, we help them clean up the whole market, kick out the bad guys that shouldn't be selling the brand. And only then can you actually start to grow your brand. It, you can't grow your brand if you have people you don't know that are getting in your way. Um, ruining the content and, and messing with different things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's an important part of, of what we do. So uh, three co-founders, but I kind of sort of single-handedly pivoted the business in, in 2016 and said, hey, you know, guys, we got to go this way. The market's changing. Um, this is what brands want. Um, and so we kind of pivoted then. But we were in the Amazon business already. Sure. And, and what do your two brothers do? How do you divide up the roles and responsibilities between the three of you? Especially in, in a family oriented business, let's say the, the roles do blend. We've worked really hard over years to get them really straight. Um, we are a scaling up company. So we've been uh, scaling up, have a coach. I've been doing that for 
oh, I don't know, three years or so. And that's definitely helped in, in dividing the roles and getting it clear on everything. Um, so my uh, middle brother, actually, uh, some people think the oldest is automatically the CEO. It's not the case. Uh, so he's actually the middle brother. I'm the baby. So the middle brother is actually the CEO. Uh, and in our structure, operations and finance actually reports up to him. Um, and then I'm chief strategy officer. So to me, it's sales and marketing of the Amazia brand out there, but not to be confused with marketing on Amazon because we consider that an operational function. Yep. And then, um, you know, the overall strategy, development of new products, what business model we're in, how we're charging for it, you know, how we go to market, that goes to me. And then our oldest brother, um, George, is chief corporate services officer. So that's like, he, he sort of serves as the controller, um, although the finance team reports up to the CEO, so, but he still serves as controller. So he has the final, you know, push button on, on money, uh, but also HR, um, any kind of corporate services like IT, compliance, documents, you know, all that stuff. Uh, I call it all the boring stuff, and, and, um, but important stuff. And uh, so HR, compliance, and uh, we have a culture committee, which is actually a committee assembled of different people inside of the business that puts together events and all the fun stuff and kind of keeps the culture going in the business. And he heads up that committee. So the boring guy gets to run the fun stuff too to balance yeah. things out. <laughs> so it's not, it's not very cut and dry like you'd expect in the typical corporate structure. And I'm, you know, there's lots of different things that happen in battle where, you know, you jump out of one role into the other. And um, That's actually what I wanted to ask you about was the battle. So, I mean, I grew up in a family business and uh, family enterprise where my brother and my dad were running the company. My brother bought my dad out and it was amazing to watch the battles that they would have. But then they'd be out golfing together the same day. And I'd be like, how you guys, I thought you were going to kill each other this morning. And, and now you're like best buddies and, you know, lining up each other's putts. Like what gives, how do you guys work through the natural frustrations that we have in business as executive members? And then how do you work through the family issues as well? Cause six, you know, 16 years, this is, you, you guys are, are, are good at it. You have to be at yeah, this point. So it, it is obviously not easy. You know, we're still together. We still talk and, you know, we're all very close on the family side. I'm actually close to my nieces, nephews, their wives, you know, vice versa. And um, it, it's not always been perfect. There's definitely been times of period where it was not necessarily pleasant. Uh, and, and so the business kind of trumps that personal relationship. And then there's been times and certainly now the scaling up has definitely helped, you know, get clearer in the roles. I think before that, each of us was doing anywhere from two to seven jobs. And when something didn't happen, it was like, it's your fault. But no, that's your fault. Why didn't that happen? But you're in charge of that. No, you're in charge of that. So I think scaling up and getting clarity on um, who's in charge of what has certainly helped um, that regard. And then also part of scaling ups, we have a regular meeting rhythm. So we obviously have daily huddles, which we're the three executives and we have a couple others in the business. Um, so you know, we're forced to meet regularly and talk through issues. We have a, a, a daily huddle, a weekly meeting, a monthly meeting, a quarterly meeting. So there's a lot of infrastructure in place to get topics out and not let them fester um, and turn into personal issues. But it's not easy. It, it absolutely still happens every once in a while. You know, somebody says something. And, and I think the other thing is we, we try to be careful of in meetings, even with our other, you know, employees and team members around, are we having a business conversation or are we having a brotherly conversation right now? And that's a very difficult thing. Um, and we got to catch each other. Sometimes it'll be like, wait, is that how you would talk to a 
a direct report or is that how you talk to your brother and then vice versa? That's pretty mindful that you actually identify that as well because you're right. It is, they're, they're very different. Yeah, the jabs, you know, like you can, you can jab your brother. You can, you know, say something that's obviously not professional in, in the normal <laughs> professional world. Right. So we had to work on that. It's interesting. I'm curious how, so you've been scaling up, you said for three years? When we pivoted to the Amazia model in 16, we're now running on almost yeah, almost five years. For the first two years, we we're kind of just figuring out, you know, hey, it, it was sort of a business inside of the big business. And then it just became the business. So for the first year, we're, it was just really a test pilot. It was like, what is this new business model? Can it even work? Then the second year was like, shoot, it's working. Clients are staying here too. Like, rev- you know, like we've got recurring revenue that's growing here over and over again. Maybe we ought to start formalizing it. And that's when we, we did the whole scaling up thing and realized like, okay, we, we've got to scale this model. Who's your scaling up coach and, and how do they work with you? What, what kind of value do they bring to the table? Our scaling up coach is a lady out of New Mexico. Her name's Patricia. And um, what value do they bring? Well, before the pandemic, we were obviously having quarterly meetings. Um, we're having monthly meetings or Zoom calls before. But I think the the value is getting clear on, okay, well, first of all, what is the business? So in 16, you know, this Amazia concept was essentially, I don't want to say my idea, but it was definitely, I was the champion of the Amazia business model that was trying to build this inside of our business. And it, you know, it took probably two years for, for the whole team to get aligned and be like, okay, this is now our business. So I think the biggest value is getting the team, which is my brothers, the other executives, the other managers we have all aligned around, okay, this is our business model. This is the market we serve. This is how we go there. This is, you know, our values. These are our mission statement. This, this is all, you know, getting all that stuff clear and it's changed over the years um, has helped. And so I think like values even, for example, values. Yeah, just that alone. Yeah, I, I had your, your values written down because you've got them up on the wall behind you. Um, I do. So, and, and even those have evolved, like that's probably draft three from when we came up with it. Like we had one or two that went away and one or two new ones that came in as we realized, like, as we started scaling and hiring new people, you test them against the values and you're like, wait, is that really what we meant when we yeah. hired them? Um, uh, for example, we used to have a value called have fun. And then we realized like, did we really mean have fun or do we replaced it with be passionately engaged? And so, because have fun was like, okay, if somebody shows up and they're just like drunk at work, having fun, are they really what we want? No, they're, they're meeting the values, but they're not really what we wanted. But if they show up and they care about their job and they want to deliver good results. Yeah, that's exactly what we want. That's interesting. I like the way that you've actually kind of iterated and talked through them and and evolved. And you, you said something that was interesting, which was that you, you interview people against them. Um, They're right in our conference room. So downstairs we have a what we call the teal conference room we name every conference room by the main color of that room so it's called the teal conference room and right on the big wall there's like all the big values and when we interview we'll actually point to it and be like you know which one means the most to you and why and and then how would you prioritize these values there's no order by the way there's five of them there's no order to us but we ask it gives you a lot of information in an interview like how would you sort these five values and why and then just you know in in someone sorting and giving you some of that information, you know, you'll learn a little bit about them. That's really cool. I love that you've named them after something that is, um, you know, easy to understand, but also doesn't get weird. We had a company years ago and the meeting rooms were named after planets, which sounded really good until Dwayne called you into Uranus. And then it was like, what? I don't go to Uranus. I'm like, I'm, I'm not meeting the CEO in Uranus. Pass, we're going to go to Pluto. 
they, each, each of the meeting rooms was the furthest away from his office. So Pluto was the meeting room furthest away from Dwayne's yeah. office. It was funny. Oh my God. No, we just went simple colors because. Yeah. Colors are but, easier but than trying to way, figure out which we ones actually, were. In the middle of the pandemic, uh, we actually terminated an employee for a value specific, but the value helped us get there. And he, mm. so we hired him. He was running a business. We always knew he was probably going to listen to this podcast, but it's okay. It's a true story. Um, we hired him. He was always running a business. And we knew it kind of on the side. It was a marketer. And then um, in the pandemic, we were having a strategic offsite meeting. And uh, either through screen share or the chat, it became apparent that in our strategic offsite, he's working on his business. Um, it became that obvious. And so then we said, hey, is that person passionately engaged? You know, can you be passionately engaged here at Amazia when you're running a whole nother business on the side? Probably yeah, yeah. not. And so it became really easy to just say, hey, like, that's not a fit. Like, even though you might be delivering good work and doing great things and liked and a cultural fit, but is he passionately engaged? Like, no way. Well, and that's, I, I've said that for years as well, that the real test on core values is are you willing to, pe- to fire people who break them? <laughs> because if you're not, then they're aspirational values. They're not core values. Yeah. I, I'm trying to think of who else we may have, you know, over the years hired or fired based on them. But that story's just relevant because it just happened during this quarantine. Well, it's probably become, it sounds like it's become part of your DNA that you're actually so used to hiring based on it. You don't have to fire on it very often. Um, you're right. I never do thought you, about it that way, but you're, you're right on that. Do you bring them up in terms of like praising employees and, um, you know, reinforcing them? Like how do you, do you reinforce them at daily huddles and at your weekly meetings? How do you reinforce the core values? We're, we're doing a lot of it and it's still not enough. So we, we, um, we have something called the Exceder program. So the Exceder program is essentially an employee of the month program in, in not sexy language. Um, and uh, your peers vote for you and fill out a little card. We used to do it in person on paper. Obviously now we're all doing it digitally and submitting like a Google form that, um, that essentially says what value did this person demonstrate and why? So, you know, Cameron, you know, demonstrated continuing learning and growing because we got this new software and he learned it all within two weeks and he implemented a bunch of cool stuff as a result of that. Um, and so then we, we kind of nominate and go through a process of selecting an exceeder um, every two weeks in our stand-up huddle, all company stand-up huddle. And then um, that everybody gets their cards back. So not only does the winner win like a gift card and a cool trophy and, you know, some other stuff but everybody gets all that positive feedback of all the other cards that people submitted for them. Interesting. Something that I wanted to ask about, because a lot of our listeners have used scaling up and I've been around it forever. How do you take the systems that the coaches working with you on, like the one page plan or the daily huddles, and how do you iterate them and, and kind of make them your own? Like how do you bend them a little bit without breaking the system? It, it's not, again, not perfect. We have not implemented every part of scaling up in the three years we've been doing it. Um, you know, you're supposed to have a whole one page strategic plan filled out. And honestly, we don't have every damn line of that thing filled out. It's a pretty big one page now. It's almost like a tablecloth. So big. It's big. There's a lot in it, but you know, we've got a clear company purpose. We've got values. Um, we have a clear, you know, BHAG and three-year plans. And again, some of those evolved, like, you know, we just developed our BHAG recently. It took us almost two years to essentially <laughs> develop the BHAG. Um, but the, it's also because we were kind of just going along figuring out, you know, what is this business and where do we want to go with it? So BHAG is Jim Collins, big, hairy, audacious goal, and it's supposed to align, align companies. What's, what's your company BHAG and how do you, how do yeah, you use so it? Ours is to 10x the business. So wherever we were at last year, essentially, 
um, in everything, revenue, employees, every aspect of the business is to 10 exit. And so then we start to make decisions on that. Like just today, I was in a meeting in the morning and we're looking at, you know, the way we currently do something, a process that relies on some software. And it's, it's like, Hey, can this work at 10 X in the existing system? No way. It won't even work at two X. So we already know, like, if that's not 10 Xable, let's start to make decisions that, that allow us to 10 X and, and meet our hack. That's interesting. You've also got up behind you on the wall, your disc profile. I'm curious, first off, what is your disc profile? And secondly, how do you use personality profiles internally at Amazia? I am, uh, I've always been and am mostly on the sales side inside of our business. Um, and so I am mostly using disc when talking to prospective clients or prospects to figure out their style and then to figure out, um, you know, the approach not, and some people think of it as like a manipulative way to get into your brain and do, but it's not, it's just, it's the way to be heard and it's the way to, to have a better, more productive conversation. If, if, um, so for example, I'm a high D, uh, with some influence as well. Um, and so high D's, when you talk to them, they're going to, they're going to sound like assholes on the other end of the line, but they're not, they're, they're actually just, they want the facts, the brutal facts, get to the point. Don't waste my time. And so simple. Why are you laughing? I'm a 98 D <laughs> through certain sales aspects and a D will have a random question out of nowhere. And it's like, Hey, you know, any other person you could say, Hey, don't worry. We're going to get to that in the presentation in just 10 minutes. Hold your questions and a high D. If you don't answer that, you're not listening. They're not listening to the next 10 minutes. You've lost them for the rest of the presentation. So you have to be aware of that. And then some people are more, you know, stabilizing. Um, I, I would say like we have internal people here that maybe are, are high, you know, compliant or cautious, I guess. It's not compliant. Like your older brother would probably be the high S then. I, yeah, you're right. And so you, you got to think about, okay, like, you know, sometimes a high D can come across as very demanding and bullying to to that type of personality. We don't mean it that way, but, um, but you just got to be aware of it and communicate differently. Now, do you use personality profiles internally with your leadership team and managers? Like, do you do profiles and teach each other how to work better together at all? We've tried at different parts. I think different managers use different, like the 16 personalities test or the disc or the, what's the ESTJ? Is that 16 personalities? That's Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs. Yeah. So, so I think everybody kind of has their own way they do it that maybe they've done in prior jobs that they apply, but we don't have a company-wide um, personality profiling process, I would say, that's very robust. Yeah, as a company scales, I used to do one personality profile per year. So we would take the whole leadership team through DISC one year, and then the next year we'd take them all through Myers-Briggs. Next year we'd take them all through Colby. And it was just a way to get them to learn more about each other, to understand each other more, to work better together, right? We can't change William and, and make you less of a D, but we, it, you know, being such a high D doesn't give you the ability to just steamroll over people. It's kind of, it's like, all right, that's who William is. We understand him now. We know how to work with him better and you learn how to work with others. So I love that you're using it on the sales side though. Um, yeah, I try to use it internally, but you know, us high Ds have a hard time remembering them. It's just like steamroll. <laughs> We remember D and then we move on. <laughs> it's all that matters in the four personalities. Your meeting rhythms. Talk to me a little bit about meeting rhythms. I wrote a book called Meeting Sucks. I'm especially interested in meetings. Oh, meetings do suck, but we have a lot of them. Um, so, um, and especially now, I think there's double the meetings there is today than there was pre-pandemic because you, you don't get the water cool. I call it water cooler meeting. You know, like, sure. like, hey, when do you think you'll have that report? I'll get it to you by Friday. Cool. See you. You, you know, or, Hey, I was stuck on blah, blah, blah. Do you know how to do that 
pivot table. Yeah, let me show you real quick. Okay, cool. Thanks. That was helpful. So you don't get some of that when you're remote. Everything takes intention and scheduling because everybody's committed in other meetings, either with client, you know, client facing people are committed that way. And then other, you know, operational people are committed internally to a bunch of meetings to, to make stuff happen. Um, so there's definitely more meetings today and everybody's definitely complaining about too many meetings and not enough bandwidth. And there's a lot of that happening. So we're trying to solve that at the same time when we don't have enough meetings, it's like, wait, why wasn't I told about that? Wait, how come you guys changed that? And I didn't know about that, you know, or how come I, you know, I wish I was involved in that decision. So you get that stuff when you don't have enough meetings. So, totally. so our meeting rhythm is, I think it's the standard scaling up rhythm. So daily huddle. So start at, start at the end for me, start out at kind of your annual or strategy meetings and work toward work back towards a daily annual. There's like a two day session, um, executive team, Offsite, which today is essentially on Zoom, um, and then we bring into that offsite the we call it the leadership level of our business. So we've got like C-suite directors, managers, and then every department has a lead. Um, we call them a lead. You might call it a supervisor. You might call it a, a department leader. Whatever different companies call it. Um, so we bring in the whole leadership teams, about fifteen people total. Um, so you have all the department heads and their managers, directors, executives, everybody up. So we do the offsite. Our executive team is, uh, five people, uh, six people now. Um, if you include, we just hired in-house counsel. It's like a really key, uh, role for us. And so in-house counsel is on the executive team now as well. Um, so normally it would be, uh, the executive team for two days and then for a half day we bring in the whole leadership team and so if there's anything that needs to be discussed with a wider group it gets discussed all together um, but if there's something that really just needs to be decided by the executive team then we do it that way so that's annual two days annual then every quarter is about a day and a half um, we used to do a day and a half in person on zoom recently we've been doing three half day sessions to not burn zoom burn everybody out and give time to other work that has to happen um, for everybody. And then um, there's a weekly meeting and then a daily huddle. And so, you know, you sit on multiple different people sit on multiple teams. So I'm on the executive team, but then I have a sales and marketing team that I directly manage. And so everybody kind of has that. My, my brother, Mike, the CEO has the executive team that he's a leader of, but then he's got, a finance team, um, for example, that, you know, he's, he's running there. And then do you waterfall your team meeting after your leadership or do you do your leadership team meeting after your kind of functional meetings in the week or what? Yeah. In the week, like let's say that you run your leadership team meeting on a Monday. Do your, do your functional business areas come first or do they do, do you do those after the leadership team one? All departments are huddling are meeting on their own on Mondays. And then Tuesday is our executive meeting. Okay, so you kind of wrap up from the from the functional meetings then. Yeah, but um, and then Wednesday we we have what's called a game plan meeting, which is really a brand meeting. We're it's the same leadership team, but we're looking with the focus of how are our brands doing, who's winning, who's losing, what what's working, what's not working, that's managing the actual brands, um, and that's it. And then in between there, there's one on ones and stuff like that. Yeah. That was actually the, the whole purpose for me writing the book meetings suck was meetings really don't suck. We suck at running them, you know, and nobody really knows how to participate and attend them. And you guys have got the right rhythms. The next level is to get everybody to know, you know, how to run them, how to participate in them, how to collaborate. And how do you get the quieter 
you know, the higher I or sorry, the higher um, S is the highest C's. How do you get those people to contribute more and to uh, participate more in meetings? Do you have any systems for that? Well, first of all, let, let me answer the first part, what you said about meetings suck and all that. And so I kind of used to be of that camp. Um, you know, like I would always say, why do we need these meetings? Let's just go do work. Let's get customers and sell stuff. Like it's real simple. Um, and so I was kind of against too many meetings, but then in March, when we went to work from home, it was like on a Thursday, we decided on Friday, we were working at home. We, we almost seamlessly went from 60 people working together in an office to working overnight at home pretty seamlessly. Like as you look back, there's really no hiccups that happened. There was no like clients we lost as a result of it. There was no like people that quit because it was so terrible. There was nothing like drastic like that. And so for me, that's, it was like, wow, like that, that really is the system. That really is what's running the business. It, it is all those meetings. Oh, that's interesting. So you actually saw the value of meetings when you were remote more than you did when you were in the office. Yeah. Like it was pretty seamless and, and it might just be because we're in the Amazon business. We're fortunate not to be a restaurant or a salon right now. Uh, like we're on the right side of this pandemic. Amazon's obviously growing and you know, everybody's buying there, but um, but either way, you know, there was still a lot of change, even for us to be on the right side of the pandemic, there's still a lot of change to manage, uh, during this period and new processes and things that aren't working and trade shows aren't happening and all this other stuff to manage. But the meetings kind of are helping us, you know, manage through all that, I think. Yeah. Do you think you'll go back to the physical office space? I mean, if we roll the camera ahead June of 2021 and we're all allowed to go back to work and are you going to go back to a full everybody present on site or do you think you'll, you'll run more as a hybrid? Well, we, we already cannot, like in this pandemic, we've started to hire more and more people in other geographies just because we could. And so we already, yeah. we already know, we actually, yep. my, my partner, my brother, Mike talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It was like, even if we wanted to bring everybody back, we already don't have room for them. So the answer is we are forced into either being a hybrid or, or you know, going to another building. And, and going to another building is not just an easy thing you just pick up and do. So um, we are already, we already have my, my um, uh, direct assistant, Sandy, moved to um, Vegas in this process. She had those plans regardless before the pandemic. We were always mm -hmm. talking about how she might test working from home in May and then it actually happened and she moved. Um, and then we hired a sales rep in Indiana recently. Uh, we hired another uh, lady in brand protection. She happens to specialize in brand protection. She's up north in San Francisco. Um, we we have about a 15-person team over in the Philippines. So we've kind of already had some remote work happening, but we, we definitely have other American employees now that are um, not ever going to be. They're in other cities. They're not going to move back. Um, and we have some that yeah. I'm sure have realized, like, this is nice. It's, it, it's probably split. I think half the people are like, this is nice. Like I have um, one other lady on my team, Sydney, and she's like, it's nice. I could like get off work at five and be at the gym at 5.05. And like, and so <laughs> right. that part is nice. And then we have other employees who are like, this sucks. You know, I, I've got kids crawling all over me and I can't wait to get to work yeah. to kind of escape <laughs> the craziness that, that is at home. So you'll probably, you'll be mindful of both of those. It sounds like, and just kind of allow it to evolve. Yeah. Them. But at the same time, I think this pandemic's allowing us to hire true experts in very, very 
narrow niches that we otherwise would not have been. Yeah. And there's no way they can all be a 30 minute drive from your office. Like it just doesn't make sense. I spoke to one of our new COO Alliance members. They're the the second in command for uh, AARP, the American Association of Retired People. They've got 4,000 employees. And they said within three days, all 4,100 employees were remote. And he said that if you'd ever told them that they ever would have been a remote office, he would have thought you were smoking crack. He's like, there's no way we could never be remote. There's no possibility. And he's like, it's working pretty well. Yeah, but <laughs> a lot like, of other things had to work out for that to happen. Like Zoom had to increase its bandwidth. If Zoom started, if Zoom was not reliable suddenly, couldn't meet, oh. we would have said, oh, guys, let's bring some people back. Let's start. Oh, imagine this happening 20 years ago before Skype and Zoom even existed. We would have been dead in the water. Right. So, so a lot of other things had to work. Zoom had to work right. You know, we've got lots of tools, Asana, Slack. You know, there's a lot of other things that had to be in place for this to work out. I wonder if that's why we've allowed it to go so long is because we're able to do it with the tools that we're not pushing back. But if we didn't have any of those tools, I wonder if the pushback would have been harder 20 years ago. I mean, I look at like my social circle, my friends, and and yeah, there's some that are in a a business directly affected, let's say a restaurant or a salon or a gym or something. No doubt they're affected, they're suffering. But most of my friends that are in some sort of office work, they're they're not at all affected. But I'm sure if all of a sudden their income was at jeopardy and losing their house was on the line, then you start mm-hmm. to make different decisions. For sure. So a couple more questions. You've, um, you know, as you mentioned, you've had three different iterations of the company over the 16 years. How, how have your skills had to change over the years as the company's grown, as the businesses have changed? Where have you had to grow as a leader? I'm still, I'm, I'm not grown up. I'm still an infant in that regard. Good. Don't and change. One of our values is continue learning and growing. So, um, I, I still have a lot to grow. I think the, the biggest difference is, okay, so you start, you know, in the beginning, you're like solopreneur and you have what I call a couple helping hands, which is a couple guys in the warehouse shipping stuff or stuff like that. And it's real easy to just be, you're essentially the smartest one in the room and you, you call the shots. Hey, take this box, ship it there, do this, do that, you know, call this person, say this. Um, but then that model doesn't scale and you start hiring people that actually have opinions and actually are right a lot of the time and and stuff like that. So for me, the biggest learning has been, uh, you know, the Amazon part of our business, which essentially today is our whole business has been my baby. Like some of the processes that run today, I invented those processes. Some of the softwares that I put in place 10 years ago are still running in conjunction and working and doing things today. So it's very much my baby. I wove that fabric. And so stepping away from that has been a very, very challenging, especially for me. I think that's even more challenging than it is for my two brothers. And I don't think it's something they could even fully understand other than, you know, a parent child relationship is literally your baby. And so um, that's been really hard because we've started to hire, uh, you know, other people that are now running and making decisions and doing things with that Um, and it used to be where I would like run into someone's office who was two or three levels away from even reporting to me, not even in my chain at all. And you'd be like, Hey, why didn't you ship this there? Why didn't you see this or what's going on with that? And it was like, Oh shoot, I I must do that because you know, he's the the main boss or so so the other thing is separating the owner and employee role. So like, am I an owner or am I a person in a job role doing a job? Uh, and that's really, that's, that's really hard to separate because it's like, yeah, of course I'm the owner. I could walk into your office and tell you exactly what to do and how to do it right now. But I've just undermined your boss and their boss and their boss 
that all probably hate me now and, and are wondering how they're ever going to do their job with me doing that. So uh, that still happens today. I'm not perfect at it. I, my employees will laugh when they listen to this, hopefully, but it's still happening today. Like I'm still in there on some things, unfortunately. Um, but that's just, you know, as we grow, I think I let go more and more and more. Um, and there's more, there's some things or some processes that I haven't looked at in like six months and they're just running or a year. There's probably processes more than a year. I've never even like touched them or looked at them, but they're running and they're doing well. Um, so, cool. so that's been the biggest growth. I think separating the owner and the, you know, employee leader hat, um, and then just stepping away from the baby as a, as really the owner founder, something different, you know, like being an owner of a business is, is it's even more personal when you're like the founder of it. Cause you could be the owner and you hired, hired a bunch of people and they ran that business and built it for you. But when you're the founder and you're like building those things in the beginning and laying that foundation, it's, it's very personal. Yeah. It's tough to let go of those. All right. Final question. If we were to go back to the 21 year old William, you know, you're graduating college or you're just getting started on your career. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but maybe you didn't know back then? I'm a, I'm a big fan of Gary V. You, know, you obviously know Gary V. And he always talks about how young people are giving them, they give themselves shit for not being successful like quickly enough. And I was always worried like, you know, I'm 21, I'm living at home. I have no money. You know, I got to figure this out. And like, I didn't move out of home and, you know, I moved out and bought my first house at 28. But when I was 21, I thought that would be much sooner. I expected that like you, you go to college, you, you know, you move out, you buy a house, it's all normal. My life didn't go that way. But as I look back, it was like, it, it was just perfect time. Like, what's the rush? So I think the advice I would give is what's the rush? Like if it takes you an extra year or two years or five years, that doesn't mean nothing. You know, it, it means a lot when you're, you know, when you're 15, you compare yourself to a 20 year old, there's a big difference. But when you're 35 and you compare to a 40 year old, it's not much difference. Um, and so the, the more years that go by, the less that difference matters. And so the advice I would give is don't rush, like just learn it all. Don't rush. Um, and then the other thing is you can fail a lot more and a lot harder when you're younger. So when you're younger, you have no real responsibility. You have no real family to support, no kids. Um, you don't have to worry about saving for retirement. You could really double down and make, you could take big risks, big legal risks. I'm not saying go sell you know, drugs on the street and, and come up fast. I'm saying take real smart business risks um, that you just can't, like, I always tell my friend, if I had to start this business all over again, like today, day, like today as a 36 year old married with two kids, I don't know if I would do it. Like there's so much more on yeah. the line. It's, it's much scarier today than it was at 21. It's like you could fail and you're still living at home. No better time in your life to go bankrupt than 21 yeah, years like old. Yeah, what do you have? Like a hundred bucks and now you're going to zero. <laughs> so, but now it's like, you know, there's way more on the line. Maybe some of the risks I took earlier on, I wouldn't have been able to. Um, so, so that's what I would say is take, take your time, fail, take big risks, you know, but learn, learn from them a lot. Awesome. William Fickman, the Chief Strategy Officer from Amazia. Thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.